Today we're going to talk about some animation methods. Hey everyone, welcome to the 41st episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I am your host, Zaccavelli. You can find me on Twitter at underscore Zaccavelli underscore, and I'm also occasionally on Twitch for a Game Dev stream. That is twitch.tv slash Zaccavelli underscore. We also have an open community Discord. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Recently, we've been doing this kind of fun thing on Friday evenings where uh, everyone just kind of jumps into the voice channel and talk about what they've been working on and hang out. And yeah, the times that I've gone to it, it's been a really good time. Um, it's nice to see what other people are working on and just kind of talk about whatever. We have a really good vibe over at the community Discord, and if you're looking to improve your skills as a game developer, I think it's a good community for you. All you got to do is use the open invite link in the show notes. Lastly, the Game Dev Field Guide does have a Patreon. If you become a patron, you get to vote on an episode topic every month. You directly support bonus episode every month, and you get a special Discord role, and it's really just a great way to support the show. So yeah, if you'd like to become a patron, I will leave a link in the show notes. With the intro out of the way, let's move on to the Game Dev Challenge. The Game Dev Challenge is the part of the show where I provide a prompt to the listeners, and it's intended to be like a 15 to 30 minute sort of exercise, just to get you to kind of practice some of the things we might talk about on the show. And the submissions go into the community Discord, and people vote on them, and then we talk about the winner. Um, every episode. Episode 40's Game Dev Challenge was to pitch a game and describe how its features satisfy its targeted player types. Um, This could have been a fictional game or you can do it for an already existing game. And if you remember, last episode was about Bartle's player types and kind of how you can uh, categorize the kind of people that play your game and design with them in mind. And the winner of the episode 40 Game Dev Challenge is Brian. Brian picked a classic example of the Bartles player types and really nicely packaged his answer all together. And I will read that um, submission to you now. Brian says, World of Warcraft has something for each of Bartle's player types. For killers, they have guilds competing for world first, server first, PvP, battlegrounds, and auction house market manipulation. For achievers, WoW has direct achievements, unique mounts, unique items, quest lines, and raids. For socializers, there's guilds, parties, world and city chat, online forums, and for explorers... It's really just the general idea that you are in a vast open world that you can explore. Brian also had an interesting twist at the end of his post. He says, despite that, I think it forces players that would normally fall into one specific player type to experience the others, such as killers slash PVPers being forced to level up via quests or dungeons 
in order to do PvP in the first place. That could actually be the reason why some people who would normally be interested in competitive nature of PvP would instead not play World of Warcraft in favor of a game that lets you jump straight into competition. And this is a great insight uh, by Brian, and he's right. In order to do really any of the things in World of Warcraft, you have to cross over into a player type that maybe is not your preferred one. And this might be counterintuitive. Um, you might think, well, I want to design a really pure experience that focuses on what people like. But I've always been kind of like, if you don't try everything, you don't truly know what you like. You know what I mean? If you're a picky eater, um, sure, you know you like peanut butter and jelly, but you're missing out on, like, I don't know, Thai food, which is incredible, <laughs> and you just missed out on it because you're like, no, I'm a peanut butter and jelly only person. So yeah, I think World of Warcraft does a good job in blending all of these things and kind of maybe even forcing you to try the other stuff, but you can still do the stuff you really like doing um, it doesn't really limit you to that. And I think there's room for both. Obviously, hardcore competitive PvP games exist for people who like that competition and like to just get straight into the competition. So yeah, I think this is just another example of where when designing, you really have to understand your audience and who you're going for. Are they going to be the kind of people that could tolerate trying Thai food when they really want a peanut butter and jelly? Or are they the kind of people who won't eat anything else besides peanut butter jelly. I know those are the kind of top tier <laughs> metaphors that you guys are looking for. So yeah, I just wanted to point out I'm really at the top of my game. <laughs> Anyways, congrats to Brian for winning the episode 40 game dev challenge. For episode 41, um, we're going to have an art challenge and these always produce really cool results. Um, this art challenge is going to be to make an animation. It can be made in any way you want, but I would like you to include a little like text post or caption on how you made it. So today we're going to talk about a few methods, and if you could just mention how you made it, I think that would be nice. This is going to do two things, or at least this challenge is going to provide two things. One, it'll allow a lot of artists to join and show off their animations, but two, It'll help people who are not as familiar with animation kind of see the results of all the different methods. So yeah, in your post, if you could talk maybe a little bit about your method. One, it'll just be good for your post and your submission. Uh, but two, you're going to help someone by them being able to see how it was made. So yeah, if you have an animation you want to submit to the Game Dev Challenge, go on over to the Discord, go to the Game Dev Challenge channel and uh, make a post with your submission. With the game dev challenge out of the way, let's move on over to the body of the episode. Today's episode is about animation methods. And this topic came about because I had a friend learning Unity and he wanted to make a character that would just walk across the screen from left to right. And I thought in my head, oh, that's easy enough. And it is. But when I thought about it, I just realized how many different ways you could do it. Each method has pros and cons, and I thought that would make a pretty good episode, kind of talking about all the different ways and maybe the pros and cons and the methods. But before we mention the methods, I think it's first important to understand animation in general and maybe why we would use it in games. 
I think I've talked about animation before, both on the Melee Combat episode, and I think I mentioned tweening in like a UI episode. Anyways, animations are super important because, in my mind, they are the thing that takes your game from being just a collection of moving images to a realized world that is alive. Next time you watch someone play a game on Twitch or YouTube, take a look at how much stuff is moving. I don't think you realize, like the amount of things moving when you are playing a game, but I noticed it the other day when I was watching someone else play a game on Twitch that really alive feeling games with great art has like everything moving. And a lot of these movements are very subtle. The game I was watching is a new game and it's called Flynn Son of Crimson. And the game is a 2D pixel art kind of action platformer. But I noticed that the art and animations are really good. And when you look at the screen, it's the kind of game that just feels alive. And I attribute that to a lot of subtle movements and kind of how everything on the screen is moving. The grass sways, the water ripples, idle monsters breathe, pickups glisten, the UI pulses, and the game just looks so alive. So before we talk about how to do animations, I figured we should get an understanding of what we should use animations for, and maybe a little bit on how we should use them. And I think the answer is use animations for as much as you can while keeping the project in scope. Now you have to be careful with doing this. Um, what you don't want to do is make it hard to know where the player should look or make it hard for the player to figure out where they're looking. Your really high frame count, like beautiful animations should be reserved for focus points like the character, the enemies, boss attacks, stuff the player should be focused on. The other stuff should be more subtle. A simple sway in the grass, a pulsing item, an NPC moving their hands looking like they're doing something. These things are subtle but make the game feel that much more alive. And keeping things subtle allows you to contrast with it and make more loud or in-your-face animations when you want. For instance, maybe the grass violently shakes when there's a monster hidden in it. An item pulses and glows so that there's no way that you miss it. An NPC frantically waves their hands because they have a quest for you. I hope you can see how you can control the subtleness of an animation to draw the player's attention to things you want to draw their attention to. So yeah, when it comes to animations, make sure things are moving and feel alive, but leave enough contrast in subtlety so that players' attention is in the right places. So now that we know a little bit about why and I suppose where to use animations, um, that still leaves the how. And now I'm going to talk about how specifically to do animations for indie game devs. And honestly, it'll be kind of focused on solo indie game devs because that's my experience. If animation is something that interests you, you should definitely go check out some animation-focused content. And there's a lot of artistic skill involved. And while I do think anyone can learn that artistic skill, I don't think, one, I would be the best teacher since I'm still learning the artistic skill and the intricate drawing parts of it myself. But two, it would also just be easier to learn in a more visual format like a video. And there is some great animation educational content on YouTube. What we're going to talk about today is the more technical methods of achieving animations in both your 2D and 3D games. 
I may still be a novice in drawing animations, but as far as implementing them into your games, this is something I have lots of experience with. So yeah, let's uh, get into it. There's sort of three methods of animation that I use regularly, and th those three loose categories are programmatic animation, advanced programmatic animation, and keyframing. And I think it's important to first point out that all of my animation experience is with software like Blender and Unity, and I think the core concepts are transferable to most software, but I may mention some minor things today that are unique to Unity and Blender. Let's start with that first category called simple programmatic animation. As the name implies, this is great for simple things that are affected by game logic. For instance, the color of a light. Maybe you have a game where there's a red light, green light type situation, and because this will be closely tied to game logic, like a timer, it would probably be easiest to just animate the color change via code. Maybe you could do something cool like a linear interpolation fade via code. Which, if you don't have a coding background, that sounds hard, but it's really actually super simple. In Unity, there's an already pre-made method for linear interpolation, so it's really just plugging in variables. Another good example of when to use simple programmatic animation is on game-focused movements. Oftentimes things will have a simple programmatic solution for the base animation and then use the other techniques in conjunction to dress it all up and put the whole thing together. This is my favorite method for character controllers. Initially I just use a square in 2D or a capsule in 3D and I move it around according to the input programmatically. Then to actually animate the character I replace the square with a sprite sheet or the capsule with a character rig. Level elements like platforms are another thing that just makes sense to move around programmatically. Like if you have a floating platform that moves from left to right, you know, kind of back and forth, just move it with code. That way not only graphically is it moving, but also the important game data is moving with it too, like the collider for instance. Simple programmatic solutions are super good for, as the name implies, simple movements. Left to right, up to down, etc. But if you need something more advanced, you're kind of limited by the math that represents it. Now of course you can come up with equations in math that represents any kind of movement, but it would be a lot of work and mental effort for some motions that would just be easier to do with other methods especially if this motion can just be drawn. And that's where we get into the next method of keyframing. Keyframing is like how you used to take a stack of post-it notes and you could draw something on each page and then flip through it and it would make like a motion picture. Like if you wanted to do a bouncing ball, each page you would go forward a little bit in time and move the ball a little ahead. Then when you flip the pages, the ball looks like it's in motion. That's exactly what keyframing is, and in most game engines, they'll have good tools built in for it. You can also keyframe in 3D, do even more advanced techniques that kind of tie into 3D keyframing. Uh, we're going to talk about those later. But basically, you can pose 3D characters almost like a stop-motion style, and the computer will figure out the in-between frames so that 3D animations look really smooth. In 2D, unfortunately, we have to draw it. 
And I would imagine that a 2D keyframe like interpolation exists out there. But yeah, I anytime I've ever done 2D sprite sheets, I've just drawn the in-between frames myself. If you know about a technology that exists where it automatically does the in-between frames, please go onto the Discord and enlighten us. But anyways, back to 2D keyframing. Um, the drawing part of it and the sprite art is still where I'm learning and have room to improve. And one of the biggest ways I have improved personally is understanding the 12 principles of animation. The 12 principles of animation are rules that some old Disney animators came up with, and basically they're the standard fundamentals of animation. There's a really good video on YouTube by Alan Becker about the 12 principles of animation, and I would say if you want to animate for video games, it is absolutely required knowledge. So yeah, when you have some free time, go look that up. The 12 principles of animation, uh, a video by Alan Becker. Really, really good information in there, and it will really help you understand animation. Anyways, let's keep talking about keyframing. In 2D, what you're going to do is draw the key parts of the animation. Let's say you're making an animation for a sword attack. You would draw the wind-up and the follow-through, and then you would draw the in-between frames. Generally, the more frames you draw, the smoother the animation will look, but you can get away with less frames than you think, and you'll want to because it can be a lot of work. In 3D, you would usually pick a few key positions and move the objects there, and the computer will do the in-betweens. On a gun firing animation, for instance, all you have to do is save two positions, the initial position of the gun, and then the position with the gun kicked back. Now if you only pick those two, it might look really stiff. You might have like a Minecraft or Roblox kind of look to it. So sometimes it's nice to add some extras according to the 12 principles of animation. Circular motion and secondary actions in this case would really apply nicely to a gun firing. This would be things like the slide going back and kind of the more circular motion it takes to recenter your gun after it's recoiled. Um, stuff like that can go a long way in making a really nice looking recoil animation. Keyframing is more work than the simple programmatic animations we talked about earlier but it really opens the door to a lot more possibilities. In fact because of how dynamic and flexible it is it's really open to however you want to make it. It's one of those things that's only limited by your creativity. Sometimes it can be hard to get an animation right just by your creativity alone. Um, how you picture something moving in your mind is not always realistic or desirable to others. So don't forget to use references for your animation. Look at how other artists are animating the thing you want to animate. Watch videos of how it moves in real life. You could even try rotoscoping. And I know that I've definitely talked about rotoscoping before, uh, but we're getting to the point of the show now where I can't remember everything we've covered. So if I've already said this, um, forgive me. But anyways, rotoscoping is basically just tracing over a video every few frames to get an animation. If you were making a character swinging a sword, for instance, you could record a side view of yourself doing the what you imagine the sword animation to look like with a stick. Then once you have this side view video, you can go back and trace over the frames, the important frames, like of you reaching back and then maybe skip ahead, uh, I don't know, a second, and then trace the next 
part of your form and so on and so forth. And you can get your general animation by tracing over the video frames. Then you just add the details that make your character what it is. This is a really good method for getting smooth animations, especially if drawing isn't your strong suit. And you could even use this for posing 3D characters as well. Just pose your character exactly how the video is posed. And in fact, I think some software can automatically do this with the use of a motion capture suit. That's actually a really big topic and one I'm not fully qualified on. But yeah, if you think about it, a motion capture suit is basically just 3D rotoscoping. And I think motion capture is pretty expensive to do, but I feel like I have seen on Twitter some indie studios using it. And maybe indie's not the right word, but the, definitely some double A studios using it. I've even seen super advanced software that can animate a rig just by watching a video of a person doing the action with no motion capture suit. So yeah, I guess the tools are evolving every day, and I do think in the near future, small solo indies will have a motion capture solution. I know that I've mentioned a character rig a few times before in this episode, and maybe we should talk more about that, because that might not be something that you know what that means. A character rig is basically a mannequin made of bones that you can pose. Think of it like a really simple skeleton that tells the character how to pose. In fact, you may have seen or heard of a T-pose, and this is just basically the default pose of a character rig. It's just the skeleton with the bones aligned in a T. You attach a, I guess you could call it a skin or a mesh to the bones, and then the bones tell the skin or mesh how to deform. Lots of engines and modeling software have rigging tools, so really what you do is you just take your character and you move it around to almost like stop motion. And you save your poses as keyframes, and the computer will interpolate between them, and you'll have a nice, smooth motion. One quick, I think, sort of key tip is that if you're using um, interpolation between keyframes for a character, never use linear interpolation. Almost nothing organic moves perfectly linearly from pose to pose. And most tools will allow you to edit the curve. And you'll want to edit the curve so it kind of starts slow, gets fast, and then ends slow. Basically, you just want your curves to be sort of in the S shape or any kind of shape that you think is fitting. Uh, just know that the fitting shape is almost never a straight line. Unless you're doing like a machine or a robot. Yeah, don't just do a straight line linear interpolation. Now, when keyframing or posing a 3D rig, it can be a real pain to move everything exactly where it has to be. And really, that's true for both 2D and 3D, and that's where we get into the advanced programmatic animations. Stuff like inverse kinematics or even procedural animation in general can be used to really save you a lot of time in posing and result in some pretty cool effects. It comes at the upfront cost of having to set it all up, which can be complex and time-consuming, and it may require some tweaking to get it right. But when it is set up, it is extremely powerful. Basically, you can smartly connect and restrain some motions or provide rules for how the bones in the rig behave. 
That way you don't have to pose each bone for a specific pose. Like attaching a hand bone to a sword and having the sword inherit the rotation of the hand so that it's always moving in the way it should. If you don't programmatically use these restraints, in some tools you would have to pose the sword to the hand for each pose, I guess, and it would be really time-consuming to always have to set that up. But using inverse kinematics, you can make sure that the hand always looks like it's holding the sword right, and you can just put the sword in any position you want, and the hand and the arm and the elbow all the way up to the shoulder, it'll all automatically update and look right so that you don't have to pose each like forearm and bicep bone to make it look right. You can also provide rules for the rig programmatically and even run them in real time, and this allows for a lot of cool possibilities. For example, you could use inverse kinematics to make sure that the character's feet are always on the ground. And this doesn't just have to be used for a humanoid character. You could make a giant spider monster really come to life with its ability to climb all surfaces very fluidly and naturally, and you can use this programmatic sort of procedural animation to make sure its legs are always sticking to whatever surface it's walking on. Another simple use would be to use it to get an enemy character to look at you. Not in like the robotic way, but in a very natural way where the upper torso bends and the neck rotates. Combine this with a lot of other advanced techniques like animation blend trees, and you can get a a lot of really natural looking animations for less work than posing them yourself. Blend trees are really just a way to manipulate how keyframes and animations blend together and it allows you to have some control over the interpolation. I have personally only started to scratch the surface with blend trees and even procedural animation techniques but I think they're super powerful and I would be making a mistake by not mentioning them in this episode. My mind was really open to the possibilities a single person could achieve with 3D animation when I watched a D GDC talk by David Rosen. The title of the talk is Animation Bootcamp, an Indie Approach to Procedural Animation. And if you're looking to make a 3D game with extremely smooth 3D animations, I think it's a required watch. If you heard the efficiency episode, you'll know that I'm a big fan of force multiplying methods, and I think these advanced techniques, like procedural animation, um, overall, those are force multipliers, and whether you're using them for 2D or 3D, if you learn how to do it, you'll be able to make top-tier animations by yourself, and it won't require so much work that it's going to put your project out of scope. Animations do require a lot of effort, especially if you want to make top-tier animations, but they're so important to making your game look good and feel alive like we talked about. But I think animation is something that anyone can achieve, good animation that is, and you can do that by choosing if you want to do it through drawing or posing keyframes yourself, or putting some work into a procedural animation system with IK and blend trees. The point is, great animation is something anyone can achieve with the right knowledge and work ethic. Let's um, quickly summarize what we learned about animation today. Animation in general is putting things in your game in motion. It is a huge factor in making your game feel alive. In general, the more animation your game has, the more life it will have. 
make sure you keep things subtle if you don't want the player's attention to be on it. You can control this subtlety to guide players' attention to what matters. I talked about sort of three categories or methods that I use. The first being simple programmatic animation, and that's just animating something directly through code. It's great for things that have a simple motion and things that are tied to game logic. A good example of this is a floating platform moving left or right. It's a great candidate for simple programmatic animation. Next we have keyframing. This is the practice of drawing or posing specific frames like a wind-up and follow-through for a weapon. Then you draw the frames in between to get a fluid motion. In 3D, the computer will often, often do the in-betweens for you. And remember to look up the 12 principles of animation so that you have a good fundamental knowledge of what makes an animation look good. In 3D, you can pose a character with a rig. And a character rig is just a simple skeleton that makes up the body and has a mesh attached to it. When you want to pose a rig, you just move the bones around so that the skin of the character looks right. You can use advanced programmatic animation to speed this up and even do it in real time. Inverse kinematics allows you to have things like look targets, bone relationships and constraints, and even placing the feet on a surface so that the steps always look right. We briefly mentioned blend trees, which is just a way to nicely move between each animation or keyframe. And remember that when you're moving between keyframes or animations, almost never use linear interpolation um, because things just don't move in a straight line like that. A much more natural motion is to start slow, speed up, and then slow down. So yeah, just keep that in mind when you're picking the interpolation rules or curves uh, for in between keyframes or animations. Lastly, I wanted to point out that using these methods are a real force multiplier, and remember this will allow you to get really nice animations even if you're a solo dev. So yeah, hopefully with this knowledge and some work ethic, you'll be able to have top tier animations for your game. If you'd like to get a hold of me, remember I'm on Twitter at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. I'm also on the community discord every single day. There's an open invite link in the show notes. If you'd like to support this show through Patreon, there'll be a link in the show notes for that as well. And uh, yeah, maybe just come pop over on over to the community discord on like a Friday evening. And maybe I'll talk to you in person. With that, I'm going to sign off. I have been Zachavelli. And I can do some pretty sweet lightsaber combat uh, animation reference videos if anybody <laughs> if anybody wants to see that. Bye.